Welcome, everyone, back to the Brocast. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network, and I am joined on this fine Friday morning, January 5th, year of our Lord, 2024, by Tracy Pearson. Tracy, how are you? I'm good, Dave. How are you? How are you, Dave? Hey, you know, I've never asked you, do you like the name Bruin Report Online? Um... Wow, great question. Um, I mean, it's a very it's a very early internet name. It is very early, isn't it? it very early. Uh, like we have to clarify. No, no, this is online now. We are plugged in. Yeah, we we're are online. We we're are. Not, we're not printed. Guys. We are feeling the power of the internet. It yeah. is coming through. Um, I mean, it's fine. It does. It does. It, it does. You know, it gives us that double edged sword of bro. That's right? why. I did, that's why I did it. Yeah. Which yeah. is a double-edged sword, um, you know, because then I, they're 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 bros, but it's also easier to say bro than it is to say a lot of like the site names. Yeah, I think it's worked over the years. I think bro was something that has really resonated, though. Don't you think? Oh yeah, I think yeah, I yeah. think um, because then you hear like Ben Hallen say bro. Um, <laughs> That's what was wonderful. Yeah, the way he got bro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and you're you know, right. That was great. You can't talk great. contemptuously about Bruin Report Online if you're in the UCLA administration, but you can talk contemptuously about Bro. <laughs> um, so I think that's good too. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, We've given so people like a, a B plus. Yeah, I think it's a solid name. I think okay. uh, given the time period that you were creating the name, I think it's an A minus. Oh, good. Good. Okay. Yeah. Great. So yeah, back then, but my grade it didn't it didn't age very well so b i think i think it aged fine okay. i mean i think it settled in into solid b territory and that you know could be a lot worse could be a I lot mean, worse there's some you there's some names out there in the <laughs> there's some names out there in the 247 universe that uh i think have aged a little bit worse yeah um okay okay we got a lot we, to talk about we actually have a lot to talk about uh yes, usually we when we when we start like this um we, and don't we have say we have about. a lot to talk about we don't but we actually do have a lot, considering yeah. it's early January. It's actually kind of surprising. But um, we got to talk uh, some stuff we said about Chip Kelly this week. That's very interesting. We got to talk about a new defensive coordinator. We've got to talk about a safety transfer who was uh, here and gone again very quickly. And uh, UCLA's and then, transfer recruiting in general. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, well, I I mentioned one of the four guys they had, um, so you know that should cover twenty five percent of it, right? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and we got to talk about basketball, uh, lovely basketball, which has not been the uh, cure-all for our uh, UCLA sports dreams. Um, but we want to start with Chip Kelly. Uh, this week, um, so we both kind of heard some things that were interesting this week, um, that uh, Chip has been uh, talking to various people about uh, offensive coordinator positions at both the pro and potentially the college level. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't even necessarily say that uh, I, he's been talking. I, from what I've heard, there have been NFL teams that have that have reached out, feelers, shown interest. I don't know how much he's actually spoken to them, so I don't want to go that too far, but. No, that that's uh, on the NFL side. That's that's what we've heard. And then uh, 
we we did hear i'd say it's a rumor plus let's put it that way because we heard it from a source that should be kind of reliable but i've heard it another source that said it kind of what is kind of been blown a little bit out of proportion that he did talk to a college coach about on the offensive coordinator position at that program so that's what we've heard and it makes things very interesting. I, I, I just don't put a lot of stock in the offensive coordinator position at another college program um, for a number of reasons. Uh, from what I know of Chip Kelly and what his intentions and what he wants to do, uh, like most coaches, he, he does not like coaching college football now. I mean, I think he likes the experience of – of the players and that whole thing. He's always talked about that. And I think that's legit, but you know, it's understandable too. where college college sports has gone with NIL, the transfer portal. Um, it's a lot for one thing. You got to work a lot more. <laughs> um, so there's that. I, a lot of coaches are, are throwing up their hands and saying they kind of would like out of college football right now. So I, I can't see him wanting to do that. We've talked about how, his wife is very enamored of her Southern California lifestyle, as anyone would be. Um, and my experience um, in doing this job and being close to these decisions when it comes to uh, coaching moves, uh, it's very underestimated how many what how much credibility and how much pull a wife has in those decisions. Uh, in, in my experience, it's, it's, it's considerable. So I, from what I've heard, it'd be really hard for him to go be the offensive coordinator in Buffalo, Green Bay. Um, I don't think he's going to be doing that. If there are other situations that arise where a lot of things fit, like he knows the head, he knows the head coach. It's a, it's a franchise that's relatively close. Um, I think he would seriously consider it. Uh, his goal, I think, would be to get back in the NFL, establish himself. He, I know people don't believe this, but he is well-respected in the NFL as an offensive mind. Um, so to get back in the NFL and then maybe work his way back to being an NFL head coach. I, I, and I, that makes logical sense. You think that would be... Given everything that I just said, that would be his path forward in as a in his coaching career. I mean, it really it's a function on like a personal level. It's a function of pride um, uh, uh, related to um, greed, right? Because it's um, if you stick around at UCLA. You're really doing it for the the cashola for the uh, for the sh- salary six million dollars. You're not getting that somewhere else. Um, so, but you're probably gonna suffer some. You're, you're probably gonna lose. But he's also doing that, as I said. You, you got to think of it this way. If if your wife likes living in Manhattan Beach and likes her lifestyle, that that trumps even the money. Uh, you you they coaches make. I've seen them make lateral moves just because their wife is from that area where they're moving and she wants to be close to her family. This has happened a lot and people don't realize this. So that's even a higher priority why he would stay at UCLA than money. 
Right. But it's going to, I mean, it, there's also some uh, some legacy stuff that, I mean, yeah, okay, his wife might be a huge part of it. Um, but also, you know, it would be a very, very odd move, uh, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, nobody usually um, goes the coordinator route from a head coaching route, especially at a P5. Um, so it would be extremely interesting. I think just simply that there's a lot of noise right now is also very interesting. Um, like what that portends from like what his agent is doing. Um, and, you know, are they going to try to pull what they did in 2021 on UCLA um, is another wrinkle to this. Because in 2021, if you remember, uh, they tried to leverage uh, UCLA and more or less successfully did, got an extension out of them um, in a position of not necessarily weakness, but a position where UCLA didn't have many easy options coming out of the pandemic, uh, the post-pandemic season um, to go hire a new coach. And so they were able to leverage UCLA uh, floating, and maybe this is floating his name as a coordinator for all these different things is an additional leverage play to try to, okay, well, we've heard Martin Jarmon say uh, he wants continuity and stability heading into the big 10. Let's test that. Let's see if we can get an extension out of him. Um, I, I, that also wouldn't be surprising given the immediate history of Chip Kelly's time at UCLA. Yeah. Um, that's, that's agent playbook first chapter um yeah. uh, float your client's name out there it can never hurt in any I, I mean then then see the impact it could have and you're yeah. right you know it could help him leverage i know fans are going how would he possibly be able to leverage ucla for more money but that's that's the difference between a fan's perspective and what really happens in this industry and that's at top of mind for agents, coaches, that's that's how this works. Well, they, and you strike you strike when leadership is weak. Um, and right now, as we've talked about for basically a month and a half, there's there's a lack of vision at UCLA, and um, I can't imagine uh, Martin Jarmond is excited about the potential of trying to hire a coach right now. I can't imagine anybody in the administration is excited about the potential of hiring a coach right now. Um, and they weren't excited about it a month ago uh, when it's easier to hire coaches. They're never excited. Administration, uh, college administration are never want a, a coaching search. They yeah. all dread it. Mostly because, as we've said before, administrators, being in a college athletic department is a strange thing. It's, it's You are an administrator. That's what you do. You're, you're either a fundraiser or an administrator you generally a lot of times don't know the sports that you're overseeing. Uh, like in my experience, a lot of administrators, if you ask them to name, you know, six head coaches on the West Coast, they might not be able to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they just aren't familiar with the sport and they are then tasked with finding a new head coach. So it's it's out of their purview and – they dread it. So that's generally across the board, not just UCLA. So, but here's the thing, and I'm going to, we don't like speculating about this because obviously, for, for one thing, I think it's a long shot that this would happen. Um, 
But there is something to keep in mind, and I brought this up on the forum yesterday, so uh, I, I, I'll, this is as far as I'll go. Everyone was talking about how it doesn't change the situation for UCLA to go out and get a coach. Like, you don't want to get a coach now. Well, actually, if Chip Kelly left on his own accord, the way the contract reads is he owes UCLA the buyout. So let's say he does pay some of that buyout or they agree it's zero. He can just leave without owing anything. That's completely different than the scenario a month ago when everyone was the, the narrative we were hearing coming out, well, around, let's say, was UCLA can't afford a new coach right now. And they piled on the price tag. And most of it, the bulk of it, was the $9 million buyout. Well, now that that's eliminated, there's no excuse to not be able to afford a coach. There, there just isn't. If you could go out, you don't own the $9 million, and you can go out and find someone at approximately $6 million a year, which Chip Kelly is now getting, you're basically trading straight across the board. Yeah, you got to pay out the assistance salaries. I get all that. Not that not that much. So there would be no excuse. Now, could you go out and get a $9 million coach? No. And that's what UCLA has those champagne tastes where they think they deserve that. But could they afford, a, I'd say, a very good coach with $6 million a year? Yes. So that excuse is now taken off the table. I just wanted to say that. No, I like it. Um, all right, do we want to do we want to move on to our next topic, Tracy? Yeah, let's do that, Dave. So I think we we did that one pretty well. Yes, yes. I, uh, I just a little grace note. Um, if the right time to fire your coach is always when they failed, the right time to let them leave also when they've failed. So if it's January, great. If it's March, great. If it's May, great. You'll figure it out. Um, there's never a need to keep a failed coach around. And then, and then, and then every you know are always. I don't get this kind of defeatist attitude of you could get something worse. Well, yeah, yeah, sure. that's true. Yeah. Absolutely true. Or you you're taking a chance to get something better. Unless you uh, so unless you hire an absolute turd like Steve Alford who poops in the punch bowl literally at his opening press conference, like unless you do that, there is always a period where there's hope. Hope is the currency of college athletics. It just is what you're looking for. Because like, look, if we're being real, when was the last time UCLA realistically competed for a national championship? It was 1954. When was the last time that UCLA won a Rose Bowl? 1986. When was the last time they were in a Rose Bowl? 1998. But you're still here. We're still here. The reason is a lot of cycles of hope, a lot of upswings, and what you get with a new coach is a cycle of hope. And there's potential. The potential of the unknown will always beat the reality of the mediocre known just will. That's that's the way college sports is. That's what everyone wants. You want that excitement of, wow, maybe this guy's going to figure it out. Maybe this is going to work. Oh, they're really recruiting well. They're going to figure this out. Um, and oftentimes it doesn't work. The vast majority of the time at every school, it doesn't work. That's why coaches are fired every four to five years on average. But 
Sometimes it works. Sometimes it works for a little bit. Sometimes it works for a longer bit. It worked for Jim Mora for a little bit, and then suddenly it didn't. Um, even even failed, awful head coaches like Carl Durrell, it worked for a hot minute right in the middle of it. Um, these things can happen. You can, and it gives you, because like, think about what you want from sports. Do you want to win? Not really. I, 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 there's an analogy I have from my Angels fandom days, because I was a hardcore Angels baseball fan, right? Super into it. Watched a ton of Angels games from the time I was like 13 to Why 17. is that too? You grew up in El Segundo. My dad was a huge Angels fan. Okay, but here's the point. I was a huge fan in their lead up to the World Series. Then I watched the World Series and I'm like, oh, that was awesome. I've watched probably 25 Angels games on TV since then. That was in 2002. I didn't really need the championship. What I liked was the buildup. I liked the hope. But the reality of winning... Eh, it's fine. I like the buildup. People yeah. like the buildup. They like the hope. They like the, oh, wow, what if these pieces come together and all that kind of stuff. That's what you're looking for out of sports. You want hope. So much of life is dreary. You want the hope of something better. Mediocre and, and reality. Said, yeah. Mediocre reality. We get enough of that in our normal lives. And, we don't and, need and, that in sports. And the point you made, hope equals money. Yep. Uh, they'll generate, if uh, you hire a new guy, there's some hope. People start donating. People yeah. start going to games just because there's a little bit of hope. Correct. Okay. All right. Onward and upward. Uh, Chip Kelly, still uh, the head coach at UCLA, hired his defensive coordinator this week. And after searching, beating the bushes, looking all around, putting in a huge amount of hours to a national coaching search where they interviewed countless dozens of sitting defensive coordinators, sitting head coaches, they found that the best guy was already on staff. Um, I can drop a little nugget here. <laughs> was I laying it on too thick? No, I was. Why? I thought that was. I thought it was accurate. Um, <laughs> I've heard that uh, one of the motivations, the factors in uh, Akaika Malloy getting the defensive coordinator position was there was uh, the potential for him to leave. Mm-hmm. And they didn't want him to leave. Mm-hmm. And a potential for him to follow Danton Lynn to USC. <laughs> well, um, see, and this is the thing you got to get the context here. Uh, UCLA is right now is struggling in transfer recruiting. Uh, it's struggling. Why do you say that? <laughs> it's it's struggling to attract coaches uh, i mean and that makes sense if you're a coach and you're looking at the job you're any job you're saying uh, what i might have one year uh, you know there has to be a question mark you'd have to really think about what your longevity would be so that would be motivating to keep a kaika malloy and and the obvious move would be to promote him to the open defensive coordinator position Especially when you can sh- you can say, hey, look, he did pretty well in the what was that bowl? The L.A. Bowl. The L.A. Bowl presented by Gronk. I know. I didn't. I just can't say that. Presented presented by Gronk. Just call it the Gronk Bowl then. That's, the Gronk Bowl would I like be better. That better. Yeah. 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 Okay. So that's that. Um, you know. Even if Malloy, even if Lynn were back, you still, 
you need the Jimmys and Joes, right? So that's going to be a Kaika Malloy has got to be thinking, well, okay, I'm, I'm defense coordinator. I'm making more money, but he still has to be thinking, I need some Jimmys and Joes next year because we're losing a lot of them. So he's going to have quite a task ahead of him. I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's not going to be easy. And um, that leads us right to, well, let me, let me just say one thing okay. about, because that was um, the perfect segue, but yeah, go ahead. No, I'm 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 stepping all over your uh, segue. Yeah, I just like from a hiring perspective, with devoid of context, divorced of context. I don't hate the idea of just promoting from within when you have a successful defense, which UCLA had this year. Um, but look, from a preventing him from going to USC perspective, I'm not going to talk out of both sides of my mouth. I do think it's important. It's not as important as preventing your defensive coordinator from doing it, um, which was which was the primary issue. Um, letting your defensive line coach go across for a lateral move, that's small potatoes. Um, so stepping up to promote him to defensive coordinator simply to prevent him from going across town, okay, well, but you're taking the wrong lesson. Here. Well, also think that he could take some players with him. Sure, but yeah. the thing is... They're already losing the Murphys. They're already losing Leatu Latu. They're already losing Carl Jones. They're already losing Jake Heimlicker. The, the. So this is my thought. Last cycle, you had a great uh, hiring cycle where you hired Dan Lynn uh, out of the Ravens. And look, a lot of people are making arguments that it was oh the talent just got you know more experienced and that was a huge part of it. Poppycock. Uh, Danton Lynn was a very, very good play caller, very, very good schemer. That's, that's why the defense improved from, you know, top 100 to top 20. Um, you, your talent that would leave with the Kaika Malloy is basically Jay Toia, potentially going back to USC. Um, maybe Kane Medrano, but really we're talking about like the last few dregs of talent on what's going to be a defense that is weighed down by the fact that it doesn't have a lot of top end talent. Um, so I guess my point yeah. is you want to go out and try to hire somebody good. Um, you don't want to just hire from within. Here's a fun little twist too. Um, from, from what I've seen is um, the Ravens might be looking for a defensive coordinator. Eh? <laughs> it would be a very funny thing to happen to USC and I would applaud it. Wow. Um, and and I'm not I'm not wishing bad on Kamari Ramsey or John Humphrey, but they what I, dilemma I, would they be in if Danton Lynn went to the Ravens? I am wishing bad on USC. I think that would be Absolutely fun. on USC. I think no it'd be ill really will funny. towards those players. Yeah, no, Absolutely. none towards them. Hope I, that I, they end up okay, but dang. That would be so funny. Um, Okay, now, now we can transition. Speaking of which. Ooh, there you go. (laughs) Love it. Speaking of which, uh, we were talking about the lack of uh, Jimmys and Joes on defense, and they just lost a Jimmy. Uh, Marcus Radcliffe, the safety. Is he a Joe or a Jimmy? (sighs) I I looked at his photos. He looks more like a Jimmy to me. Maybe interesting. Yeah. Um, he, uh, the San Diego state, um, safety transfer committed to UCLA early in December after taking an official visit, really promising true freshman year. Uh, 
then we learned a couple of weeks ago a little asterisk that he is planning to visit Texas A&M. Now, here's, here's where we divide up the, the blues. How many people, when they heard he was going to visit Texas A&M, actually still thought UCLA was going to hang on to him? <laughs> nobody, nobody recording this podcast right now. <laughs> and he just flipped to Texas A&M yesterday. Yeah. Uh, that leaves... Wow, we're back to square one. Really, I I call it square one. When you call it square one with the depth chart, oh, the depth chart as it currently is, I would call this square negative three. Well, I meant square back to square one after losing Kamari Ramsey, and I'll throw in Will, William Nimmo. Um, yeah, I mean, okay. So if you're looking at the USCLA safety depth chart right now, um, what you're what we're basically saying is we have right now, guys everyone out there, Brian Addison as a starter for next year, we're not even sure he's going to be able to play football next year at the college level. Yes. Because he's applying for a seventh year when I already detailed this, he's played in literally every single season he's played as a college player. And he already redshirted once. He can't redshirt again like he's trying to do from last year unless it's a medical redshirt. But I've never seen a guy get a medical redshirt when he's played as many games as Brian Addison has. Yeah, it would be, and it, I think it would also be slash hardship redshirt. And I've never seen that for a seventh year either, but who knows? Who knows? Maybe he does, but, but let's just say, let's just throw him in. Even then you're looking at one of RJ Jones, uh, Clint Stevens, Christian Dunbar Hawkins, or Zeke Thomas starting at the other safety spot. And, now, and, if you're unfamiliar with those names, that's because none of them have played, I think, a single snap of defense. Maybe Clint Stevens has uh, at the UCLA level. But then you're also missing the nickel spot. Yeah. Which would be DJ Justice. Who I like okay, but there's a reason Alex Johnson beat him out last year. Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, they would absolutely have to add a safety when the uh, transfer portal opens up in late April. How good that usually in late April, what that is, is most guys got of the beat time, out in spring. Guys that got beat out in their spring practice. So uh, you would think it like, you know, it might be a, uh, you know, if it's a power five guy, he got beat out. Maybe there's some other, uh, you know, G5 or a service academy or something guy who has decided suddenly he wants to play at a higher level. Um, but yeah. That I, I I think it's safe to say this is going to be tough to improve the safety, the talent level of a safety depth chart at this point. Yeah, I think you might add bodies. It's hard to raise the level of talent. And if they lose Brian Addison and he doesn't get that year of eligibility. Yikes. Yeah. So there's that. That's what happened. Um, and, you know, that's. That's kind of indicative of what we've been saying about their their transfer um, uh, portal recruiting situation. Right now, there is, I guess, well, let's just call it a window where transfers can officially visit. It started uh, on the 3rd through the 8th. Um, I know UCLA is trying to get some visits. We can't talk about it yet. Uh as of right now, I'm uncertain if they are going to have any visits. They they are trying. I think they have a legitimate chance. There's that. Um, 
They do have a boom, an outstanding boom from a transfer. There was some confusion over that. Well, and I want to be clear about Tracy's use of the word outstanding here. It's the other one, not the one that's like, oh, well, this now, is very. Okay. No, yeah. no, I just want to, yeah. I want to be clear because people, people ask this question on the board. When we say outstanding, we mean they, they haven't yet been announced. Yes, that's it's all. still existing. Yeah, still existing. Yeah. So there is a boom. And I just just to clarify this, we do not control the booms. We have no we have no power over the booms. That is um, a UCLA. That's Ethan Young, the director of player personnel who puts out the boom. We just um, distribute that news. That's <laughs> we, all we, we di- do. We distribute the boom. We we are boom <laughs> distributors. And um, whether that player then announces his commitment right after that or takes a while. There have been some who've taken quite a while. And this one is, I mean, we're going on a couple of weeks, I think. Yeah, That's not up to us. And while we know who it is, this is a big moment for this player. We're not going to take that away from him. We're trying to, you know, be honorable human beings here and let him have his moment. Just wanted to clarify that because there was a little bit of confusion on where all this, why we do this this way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But we're, we we don't do the booms. So there you go. We don't do the booms. We're boomless. We are boomless freaks. Um, so um, if you look at UCLA's transfer recruiting right now, they have four commitments. Uh, we mentioned Brian Addison. Uh, in his situation. Uh, the most recent is Collins Achiapong, who is uh, a 6'7", I'd say even 6'7 plus. I saw him play, the first time I ever saw him was play basketball, and I thought it was a good, I thought it was bordering on 6'8". Uh, he's now 270 pounds. He spent a year at Miami. He was a pretty highly recruited uh, def- uh, athlete, but um, projected as the defensive end. UCLA was the first to offer him. Uh, he committed to Michigan, then he flipped to Miami. Uh, he said in a story how he just wasn't feeling Miami. He was injured, uh, wanted to come back home, which was Southern California where he went to high school. Um, uh, I, 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 you and I have talked about it. Uh, any six, seven, 270 pound athlete you can get, you, you, take. Abs- you absolutely take. Yeah. Whether he will be able to plug in and, and relieve the issue at edge rusher for UCLA next year is going to be questionable. He could end up as an offensive tackle even because he, he, his body and his, and his quickness, the way he is might lend itself better to that position. I think UCLA is going to have to sort that out. So one, a good commitment because you you'll take any six, seven athlete, but two, I don't think we can think he's the savior as the pass rusher for next season. No, I think that's exactly right. And in our commitment analysis that will probably be published today, I say much the same thing. Um, he's, it's a great developmental thing because he redshirted this past year, so he still has four years to play. Um, and so you, basically, it's like um, at the NBA level where they draft and stash a guy. Like I, they're gonna have to play him next year because I mean, look at that depth chart. But he really shouldn't be counted on to be a Leatu Latu or even a Gabriel or Grayson Murphy. He's not that at this stage, uh, but he could be. 
Like if you give him a year or two of development, he could get to that level. There's a ton of upside here. Like his story is crazy. Didn't play football really at all. Um, and uh, so those kinds of guys, it, it's a really, it's a huge untapped upside. And yes, there's a risk that they never figure it out and they never, um, you know, advance past just being a big, long athlete. But at the college level, even big, long athletes who never figure it out can sometimes impact a game. Um, so it's a it's a really good get. Um, it's exactly when you're idealizing what you want out of the transfer portal, this is exactly what you want outside of immediate impact because you get a guy who up until that memo was released, and we'll see if that's finalized, can't transfer again and still has four years left to play. Um, so that's all very good. So, yeah. Um so four commitments uh, from transfers, um, and uh, all their uh, transfer rankings are in. Brian Addison is uh, 85 as a transfer, a three-star. Collins uh, Achiapong is an 89, and that's a three-star. Um, there is Rico Flores, the wide receiver from Notre Dame. The only four-star in the class. The four-star in the class, and a very, a very good player, um, we talked about it before, whether, uh, you know, you, you got to hope that, you know, he'll come in and and, and be the, the wide out who gets the ball thrown to him. Um, so that, that's an issue, but that's a, that's a great addition. And then a kicker, uh, Mateen Bagani from Cal. So that's the transfer class so far. Um, in the past... Uh, UCLA got most of its transfer class done uh, with the opening, the first opening of the transfer portal window. Uh, that's not to say that they wouldn't be able to, you know, maybe add another 10 guys in spring, but that's not the way history has gone. So th- they are in a challenging position right now um, to really fill out some talent for next season well surely they're like almost full up right like they don't have a ton of scholarships available they have well depending on depending on blake tabarachi uh whether uh, he's probably going to i don't think he'll come in and fall so they will have 10 to give they have 10 to give right now let's put it that way so yeah 10 transfers would be fantastic I mean, you'd have to say two edge rushers would be at the top of the list, right? Uh, a safety, as we just detailed. Uh, okay, but like, but guys, 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 come on. All right, so Tracy wrote a great story about transfer portal needs, but read it like this. Um, you don't get high-level players at this point. You don't. You will not. So whatever edge rushers they're getting, it's... Um, I don't want to say dregs because I'm not going to say that don't about say dregs, guys. Yeah. But it's it's going to be guys who are either beaten out at the P5 level or somebody who has a really nice spring from a G5 level and is looking around. Yeah, but let's even just then, say like a Jake Heimlicker level. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. It's a yeah. guy who can play in your depth chart, who can come in and play, you know, 10, 12 snaps a game. That's that's what you're talking about, or at least on a really good defense. Or You're going to pull or, in a Jake Heimlicker and have yeah. him start. Or what a, we're talking about here. Or a guy with big upside, but he's young. He's a freshman or a retro freshman, and he's a potential starter down the line, but he's got some development ahead of him. And he's but here's back. the here's the other thing. The same competitive issues that you saw in transfer recruiting 
in December, everyone out there, they're still going to be there in spring. Now, a lot of the really good programs have filled out most of their transfer portal needs, but are they going to say no to a talented edge rusher in April? Are they going to say no to a talented offensive tackle then? No, they're not. And so UCLA is going to be in a similar competitive situation. So it's going to come down to like what emerges from the Ivy League, what emerges from the G5 level that's like maybe not the top rung of that talent. Because there's just a reality to the way UCLA has recruited this cycle where the two guys they got that I think are pretty good, um, well, let's just say it, all four of the guys they got have ties to either Southern California or just the state of California generally. Like Cal bounce back, that's starting to become a pipeline, Mateen Bignani. Uh, Rico Flores, Southern California kid. Collins Achiampong was a local kid. I mean, after he moved in. Uh, and then Brian Addison, I think that's local too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Committed to UCLA out of high school. Yeah. So this is all, um, they're, they're all locals. They're all bounce backs. Um, that's an advantage that UCLA has, but it's not necessarily an advantage they'll have with anybody coming out in April. Um, and I think none of those guys were committing to UCLA for NIL reasons. They were committing to UCLA because they wanted to come back home. And UCLA, with Collins, this is one thing I will say for UCLA staff. They recruited him so heavily. And if you remember uh, when we were writing stories about him all throughout his recruitment, UCLA was always top of the list. He was always talking about UCLA because they did a really nice job recruiting him. This is the value of doing that in high school. When you do that in high school, sometimes you're not going to get the kid. But a lot of times, and this is UCLA's history, they get Southern California bounce backs. Like a lot of Notre Dame guys come back to UCLA because it's home and because they recruited them out of high school. Um, there is value even when you lose a guy to build relationships, to offer, to aggressively text and call and build that relationship, get to know the family, do in-home visits, all that kind of stuff because you have a relationship then in this transfer portal era where they can come back in a year or two or three or whatever it is. But anyway... The situations that presented themselves for all four of these guys won't necessarily present themselves for the ideal matchups coming out of April, uh, and like it, it's dire, man. Like and, it's and, just a dire situation. And here's the other thing too. This is a re really interesting element of this. Well, first off, I dropped a little bit of a nugget in there. Uh, we had heard Jay Toia was leaning towards going in, uh, putting his name in the NFL draft. We're hearing he might be leaning towards returning now. But that's not to say he still won't go in the draft. Um, and that's not to say he still might not transfer. He has transferred once, but if that rule, I don't even know. What's the state of that rule? I thought it was, it was working, wasn't it, that you could multi-time uh, multi, multi -time transfer? Well, so it, the NCAA dropped it into a memo, right, yeah. um, where it's like, well, we're not going to – but we will reevaluate it next year. But as as all things NCAA, it's super opaque what they actually meant by it. Um, a lot of people took it to mean that transfer portal window that we were just in, the guys who transfer out then will have a second year, a, a second free transfer. But what that memo said was that it's not necessarily determinative for other windows in the future. Right. Uh, so so it's uncertain if Jay Toia would have an option to transfer. I don't Correct. think he's a graduate. Uh, so he would, that would be, 
Um, he will be a senior, but he'll be a true senior. So I don't think he'll, I don't, I haven't heard that he would graduate. So, um, there's a chance that he could return. Uh, there are, which would probably be UCLA's biggest news for next year when it comes to retaining talent. Um, there's, there are a couple other guys who are considering putting their name in the NFL draft. They haven't yet. Um, I think most of them have gotten back their 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 NFL feedback. Um, uh, from what I've heard, generally there are a number of them who are considering are more seriously considering returning, like leaning towards returning, but also considering possibly transferring. NIL might have. Uh, be a big factor in that trying to get some more NIL out of UCLA. We've talked endlessly about uh, those resources and, and maybe seeing what their NIL uh, value is out there in the market. Um, and so there's a lot of uncertainty there for a few of those guys. Um, I, I, and here's, here's the point, which is really interesting. It sounds like it's a win that these guys didn't like you went through the transfer portal uh, window and more guys didn't put their name in. And it sounds like uh, it's a win. They didn't put their name in the NFL draft. Um, there's, there's definitely two points of view here. Uh, you'd almost anyone who really wants to leave, no matter how talented you'd want him to just leave. <laughs> so then you can start recruiting to his position Rather than there's a chance he's going to go through spring practice, still not be happy, still not get the NIL he wants from UCLA and put his name in the transfer portal in spring. And you're left with, you didn't call him dregs, did you? No. Okay. No, no, no. I mean, who you could get. No, I I said, I won't say dregs. You won't say dregs. So we're going to call him the, you won't say dregs options. Yes. Um, But I, yeah, it's going to make it tougher. You're going to be scrambling at the end to try to rep- you there is a point of view that you would rather just some of these guys just go now. So you know what you're working with and what you have to replace starting with the spring when it starts April 15th rather than waiting it, it's April 15th to April 30th instead of waiting and some of these guys put their name in the transfer portal April 27th. Yeah, and one date to keep in mind, uh, everybody, the NFL draft deadline, the deadline to put your name in, is 10 days from now on January 15th. So we've heard that probably most of the guys who were leaning towards thinking about it are maybe not leaning towards thinking about it, but a lot can change in 10 days. So um, just keep an eye out. For... We're still uncertain about Leiatu Latu. <laughs> <laughs> He hasn't announced. Um, I removed it, him from the depth chart. Yeah, you no. And we, I just said, let's just remove him. This is ridiculous. We're done playing this game. He can yeah. he can do whatever he wants. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's where things stand with the portal, uh, with the roster building. Um, I, I I can't talk about any more football. It makes me sad. Um, let's talk about something else that makes me sad. Basketball. <laughs> uh, UCLA basketball. Let me let me get their actual record up because I've kind of uh, you know I, I'm not quite doing it, but I'm kind of falling into like um, no, I can't even say it. Yeah, don't say it. I know what yeah. you're gonna say, so don't say it. Yeah, I won't. I won't. Um, they're six and eight. Uh, they've lost six of their last seven games. Um, they just lost to Stanford at home. 
they've lost to Northridge at home. They lost to Maryland at home. Um, they had a promising-ish road trip at the Oregon schools uh, over the weekend before New Year's, and then um, that got kind of wiped away by the Stanford game. I do think one thing that's going on is we are um, – uh, riding the wave of the moment a lot with how we're uh, assessing this team and how everyone is talking about this team because I think the general feeling after Oregon State and Oregon was, okay, you know, they're starting to figure it out. A Dembone is looking a lot better. And then after losing to Stanford at home, it's, oh, they're they're awful. They're going to need to cut uh, 75% of the roster and all this kind of stuff. And I, I don't I don't know that that attitude isn't true and correct. I would just note that that is happening. Um, and I think it's because this team is so young and so very inconsistent um, that it can look decent enough at times and then it can look awful. Um, and it really just kind of depends on the game, the matchup, the relative motivation, how uh, how focused and locked in they are versus unfocused or nervous or anxious or whatever it is. Um, but Stanford was another bottom point, another very low point. Um, and I think primarily, um, primarily, uh, because of the lack of point guard play in that game, uh, it was dire. They scored only 53 points. And in the second half of that game, I don't think they, they ran a single good half court set. And a lot of it was because the initiation was so slow, so indecisive, and um, just clearly Dylan Andrews in his own head a lot. Yeah, I, I think you can you can say that was like a a really predominant factor. There were a lot of things. There, yeah, there were many things. I, I, the overall the overall issue here is, and I brought this up, and this just not in that game but throughout the season and just what's happening with this team. Um, you got seven freshmen and eight new players. Yeah. I mean, that's that if we're, if we're going to back up and try to second guess Mick, what Mick Cronin did for this season, I think that's very, very valid to point to that. Um, it was too much. It's just too much. Uh, let's not even throw Stefanovic in this. Let's just say the seven freshmen. Uh, Mick Cronin, how he wins is by he finds his proven made guys, and those are veterans. They've gone through the gauntlet with him. He's made it tough on them. You know, they've gone through his boot camp, and they've come out on the other side. Um, when you bring in freshmen, let's say you bring in three or four, there's there is you know nine guys who are there and veterans and who have who have come out on the other side. And not only are they telling those freshmen, hey, man, just stick with this. I know it's tough, but he's going to make you better um, than any other coach. It's it, it's it's going to be rough, but he's going to make you better. Or they just see it. You know, they look they look over there and they see friggin' Jaime Hawkes, right? And uh, David Singleton. So this team doesn't have that. You've got seven freshmen saying, what is this? What What's going on here? This is – I. I one turnover and I get yanked. I mean, there is there is nothing for them to reaffirm that they're doing the right thing. There's that. 
And then it's just literally trying to get seven freshmen to play decent basketball because they don't know how to play. This whole international thing on the forum is way overblown. If these were seven American freshmen, it'd be the same thing. They don't know how to play. While you can point to international play, they don't understand this. Uh, trust me, uh, seven freshmen, if they were uh, grew up on AU ball, they are would be just as bad. Uh, I mean, right now, Sebastian Mack is one of the featured freshmen. And while he has some upside and he's looked good at times, there there's a lot about basketball that he needs to learn that he yep. needs to learn before he's a good player. So it's not the international thing. It's the youth thing and having all of them at one time. That's the issue. That would have been, if I could go back with 2020 hindsight, that was the miscalculation. I think that's the obvious one that Mick Cronin, that Mick Cronin committed. Um, yeah. I, I would say, I would say just building on that, like I wouldn't necessarily throw out, um, any of these guys as like non UCLA level at this point. Um, I think there's, there's some of this that was um, uh, evaluation versus reality. Like I think when you're evaluating a guy like a Mara, you're looking at seven, three, you're looking at the skills, you're looking at all that kind of stuff. And you're evaluating him for like, is he eventually going to be a pro? You know, does he have high upside? And all of that is true. Um, but I think from a play on the floor standpoint, He's he's developmental. Um, that's a developmental big. That's not an immediate plug and play. Big. So so really fast on him too. Let's just clarify this: Is he a five star recruit uh, prospect? Yes, he is. Name me a seven three uh, prospect who is highly ranked, who came in as a freshman and was scoring like fifteen points and had nine rebounds a game. If you are seven three, if you're seven foot, if a lot of times if you're just six eleven, yep. if you're just a shorty and you're six eleven, you are raw and you are developmental, despite your upside and that five star upside. That is, it's a different beast to be a five star big than it is a five star six seven wing. Let's just get that out there. And if you're saying something, why he's not a five star? You don't understand, you're not understanding how to evaluate prospects, basketball prospects, specifically posts. They're a completely different beast. Okay. His his stats are um, very, 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 very similar to Thomas Welsh as a UCLA freshman. Like that's, and I think, you know, I don't know that Daimara in, in the reality of the world is a four-year player, um, but, you know, that trajectory of like, and that was Thomas Welsh who I think, you know, in the fullness of time was probably a little bit more college ready physically, uh, was a little bit stronger. Um, but you know, that's, and Thomas Welsh turned out to be a very, very good player at UCLA. Um, you know, was averaging a double, double as a senior, nearly a double, double each of his final three years. Um, and he wasn't seven, three, he was seven foot. Um, and he doesn't, didn't have the passing skills that a Mara does. So there's Zach Eady played his freshman year at Purdue yeah, um, because he had to, for one right. thing. I mean, there, it wasn't a deep. He averaged eight points and four rebounds. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, he's going to be uh, – he's probably the NCAA player of the year this year. Just big guys are different, right? They're just, they're just different. So you've yeah. got to understand that. So that's one. 
Uh, and that's one that people have been talking about. Um, the other ones, I mean, Elon, the athleticism is obvious to anybody who's watching the game. Um, now, is there a lot of skill development that needs to happen? Yes. Um, I think for him, uh, if I had to read him correctly based on the things he has said as well as his play on the floor, I think he needs to uh, have some real introspection about where his strengths are as a player and where his weaknesses are. Um, that's the thing I see is a guy who doesn't necessarily know that he's not going to be an awesome offensive player at this point and needs to really hone in on, okay, what are my strengths? I'm a really good athlete. Um, I can play defense and I can rebound. Um, and do do it, what's going to get him on the court and keep him there. That's and, have the Jalen Clark mindset. And that's the thing that like, I, I, that's the, one of the things that I think Mick Cronin is publicly saying, which I do want to get to in a little bit, what he's saying. Um, but I think that's one of the guys he's talking about is uh, Elon needing to hone in on that side because that's the way he gets on the floor. Um, and then you've got Jan Vide, who I actually thought looked promising against Stanford. Uh, he came in, uh, ran the offense a little bit when he came in um, and didn't look badly. He, again, he shot poorly, but everyone on this team does. And, and that's his shot. He got his shot. Those floaters and runners in the lane, that is his shot. He's very good at that. But coming first game in, what, five, six games, um, you know, playing for Mick Cronin as a freshman, he's a little tight. So yeah, and that not, is, he got his shot, though. He wasn't taking bad shots. Exactly. And so people have been saying he doesn't have plus quickness. And, of course, he doesn't. He doesn't have plus quickness. But he's also not like he's not an absolute liability. Like it's not, this is uh, the hyperbole on our board is, is uh, somewhat bothersome to me because there's a lot of six, six guys who don't have plus athleticism who impact the college game at a huge level because of their skill level. Uh, now I don't know if Jan Vita is going to get there. He needs to add a shot. He needs to add an outside shot. There was a game, there was a play against Stanford where he just completely passed up away a straightaway three that he needs to take. Um, if he's going to be playing that role. Uh, but, he can impact a game at that level of athleticism if his skill level is there. And I think there's signs that it is. I mean, he can get in the lane and he can hit a runner and that's first step. Like, can you create your own shot? Does it, it doesn't need to be, you know, blow bys like Sebastian Mack, but can you, you know, with some hesitation dribbles with some power dribbles, whatever it is, create your own shot. And he can. So there's one right there. Um, and those are the three guys who aren't playing. So then you look at the guys who are playing, um, you know, Berke, I think is obvious to everyone. So I don't even need to belabor it. Right. I mean, everyone kind of gets that one. He looks the part. Um, he can for a six, nine guy and pretty big, he moves his feet really well. Um, I don't think he's like a super athlete at the four, but he moves his feet pretty darn well. Um, you know, I was watching a little bit of his late film from his last year in Turkey. I was a little worried that he would grow into a five, but he looks more lithe than he looked in that. Like, he looks more flexible. He looks more able to switch and do things. Um, and he can score. I mean, the obvious offensive talent was there against Stanford. Like, he hit some shots, and it looked good off his hand. Um, he clearly has some post moves. He needs to simplify his post moves. Um, he's going to call, get called for a lot of travels. Uh, a lot of three-second violations. But, again, there's talent there. Um, it's just all these four guys, they're just super young, and they're figuring out what are they good at and what are they bad at. Now, I think Adai Mara is a development guy. Like, he needs to get stronger. The other three guys, most of it 
it's the mental growth. Like, okay, what am I good at? And how can I focus on that? And how can I simplify my stuff and make the smart play? And that's stuff that every freshman experiences. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's borderline uh, xenophobia. Um, like, I, I just think people, you know, they see a bunch of Euros and they've got a bunch of, like, preconceived notions about what European basketball players do and play like and all this kind of stuff. And, I mean, Burke's a tough ass. Like, he fell down. How many times against Stanford did he just get knocked on his ass? Yeah. Like, it was like four or five yeah. times, and he just gets right back up. He had blood on his knee. Like he's he's a tough dude. Um, you can build around that. Um, there's a lot of reason to say this team's pretty bad right now. Um, but my and this is why I've, I've mentioned him up top. My main issue with the upside of this team right now has nothing to do with any of those guys. It's point guard and broadly guard and wing play on this team, and that's. That's that's Dylan Andrews, Sebastian Mack, Lazar Stefanovic, and I guess Will McClendon. But I'm going to leave him out of that conversation because at least he's shooting. Sebastian Mack, Dylan Andrews, Lazar Stefanovic, um, in that game, up until Sebastian Mack hit those shots late, were a combined five of, I think, 23? No, 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 it was more than that. It was five of 31. And in the second half, if you take away those two threes, they were one of 21. And you you can't <laughs> one one of twenty one. I mean, Lazar was out there, um, and look, there's. I think so. The conversation about him is also a little bit annoying because people only focus on the shooting, um, and the shooting is important, and it's his role, and he needs to be shooting better, and he's probably playing too many minutes a game. But he also, before that Stanford game, was doing a lot more on the floor. He was rebounding really, really well. I mean, for for his size and his strength, he rebounds really, really well. Um, also playing, I won't say mistake-free basketball, but playing more mistake-free than the other guys. Um, like the the things that Mick Cronin wants out of a vet, he was providing sort of. That Stanford game was a major low point because uh, he not only didn't rebound, he didn't shoot, and he wasn't looking to shoot. He wasn't looking for his shot. He passed up shots that he should take. Um, and... Just bluntly, he's not shooting well enough at all at this point. Um, and that's a huge problem with his role on this team because Andrews is clearly struggling with his confidence and Sebastian Mack doesn't want to take an outside shot. He just does not want to do it. Um, I want to add one thing about you covered Stefanovic. I just, I don't, I wrote the review and I, I don't write about the officiating in a game, but there was a call. When he was defending on the ball, guy drove into the lane. The guy literally punched Stefanovic in the face. <laughs> yes. Punched him in the face, <laughs> and Stefanovic got called for the defensive foul. He punched beautiful. I mean, he literally punched him. He he flat out with a fist punched him in the face. That was one of the most amazing calls I've ever seen. It was gorgeous. So the other thing I'd say about Stefanovic, and this is the reason why this is one where I think he has maybe been misevaluated in his career. He doesn't have plus quickness. He needs to get bigger. He needs to get stronger um, because he's not going to beat people even now at, I don't know, what does he look to you? 190, 195? Yeah, 195. Like he needs to get to 205 and be stronger. Because he can't finish through contact. He can't really even get in the lane to try to make a layup. 
Um, so if you're going to be that guy, you need to be bigger. Um, and be the guy banging down low, be a, be a, be a small four at times, um, play that kind of role. And also if you get stronger in the end of games, when you're trying to make shots, you're making more of them. I don't know how many second half shots he's made this year, but it's not many. Yeah. And I think it's cause he's physically tired because he's banging a lot, but he doesn't have the body to do it. Um, yeah. and he's playing 37 minutes. It's a lot. Um, so yeah. And then Sebastian yeah. Mack. Sebastian yeah. Mack. We got to yeah. talk about Sebastian Mack because here's the thing with Sebastian Mack. There's a lot there to like. He's aggressive, which on this team, boy, how do you need some aggression? Uh, but the development is stagnating. At I'm gonna run, I'm gonna dribble with my head down straight into the defense, and I'm gonna see what happens. And that's literally what it is. I'm going to see what happens when I get there. Maybe I'll make a shot. Maybe I'll get fouled. Once teams get me scouted, I'm probably going to turn it over at about a 50% clip. And my number this. one pet peeve, jumping to pass. Yeah. Oh. He, he doesn't, he, he does, he's dribbling without a plan. It's, it's, and this is another one where it's just mental. It's, it's just because Sebastian Mack, people talk about quote selfish players. And I've always thought that's, we've seen some selfish players at UCLA over the years, but most of the time, what it means is a guy is not developed. He's not yet gotten to the point because, most basketball players are kind of selfish. Like you want to take shots. You want to hit big shots and all that kind of stuff. But you learn you look best when you're not just purely hunting shots all the time. Like you look best when you are playing off of other guys, when you're passing the ball, when you're doing other stuff. You get more open looks. Things look better for you when you're playing like you're on a team and not just one on five. Sebastian Mack hasn't gotten there yet. But that doesn't mean he's a selfish player. It just means he hasn't developed to that point. He's being asked to do this. He's being too, asked to do this. They, I mean, when they clear out at the end, he's gotten the ball sometimes because he's being asked, go get a basket, get fouled, get to the line, do something. Or create a, a create an open three for somebody else. And that's the part that he's missing right now. My And this is my radical view. When he has, you, you've seen when he's turned a switch on and he had it at the beginning of the game, at the beginning of the year when Dylan Andrews is out. That he he functioned more like a point guard, yep. where he was looking to pass instead of dribbling into nowhere and making a decision later, dribble in and be looking to pass, draw draw the defense and find someone for an, an easy land. When he does that, he's better than the, at that than Dylan Andrews. Yep, I I think they should start thinking about making Sebastian Mack the point guard, and it, and just. Let say, hey, we've been asking you to go score or get fouled, go into the lane. We are now asking you to create for others. Yeah, it wouldn't be the worst idea because Dylan Andrews is um, he's really struggling. And uh, I mean, the, the Stanford game was the low point because, I mean, he was being guarded by a walk on for a lot of that game or a former walk on, I should say. And not once did he just blow by the guy. And that the thing is, when a guy isn't taking advantage of his natural athletic gifts, um, you know he's overthinking. Because Dylan Andrews, there aren't too many defenders, if he decides he's going to try to blow by you, who can stay in front of him. He's got a lightning quick first step. He can do that, but he's not. And I think a big part of it is he's got a lot, of, he's got a lot on his shoulders. He's trying to run an offense. He's trying to be Tiger Campbell. He's not Tiger Campbell. And... That's not his skill set, and anyone demanding that he be Tiger Campbell, that would be a misstep. You know he, what, though? It's funny you bring up Tiger Campbell because I was thinking this during the last game. Sorry to interrupt. 
where Tiger Campbell took his, he, he had a couple of step ups during his career where he took it to another level. Of course, when he started to become a decent three point shooter, that was one. The other one was when he learned to come around that ball screen, threaten like he was going to the basket, but then he quickly pulled up from 12 feet and buried the shot. Dylan Andrews has that capability. Yep. That's the next step he should be doing offensively. He's just so indecisive. He's so indecisive right now. And that's, I mean, he's just, he has to, he has to, and I think that's why, and it just dovetails with your point, taking him off the ball, at least for a good chunk of the time he's on the floor, just to allow him to make more simple decisions, I think would really benefit him as a player right now. Yeah. He'll draw the defense. He'll open up. He'll, he'll be able to open up lanes to pass to guys under the basket. It's like you could see when Tiger Campbell said, that's my goal. This is what I'm doing right now. That's my first option. There'll be other options, but that's what I'm going to, I'm going to get it right into about 12 feet and pull up and hit a shot. And he was deadly. Yeah. He's got to take on one thing and master it for the rest of the season. Agreed. Is my opinion. Yeah. And, and then the last one, Adem Bona is finally playing like the guy that we thought he would at the beginning of the year. Yeah. And I think that's, that should be exciting for people. I think, I think this is a low point, and I, I don't want to get into the prediction game, but I do think this is like kind of the nadir, the 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 real low point. Now, guys could quit, and they could you know, say, oh, "Screw this, I'm done." I don't think so. They're still playing really, really tough defense. They still seem committed to the project. Um, I think it's going to get better. I don't think they're making the NCAA tournament. I don't think it's going to be a turnaround like 2020 was, but I do think they're going to be playing better basketball because the Dem Bone is playing better basketball. And when they've got a guy like him playing the defense the way he is, like think about how badly they had to shoot and how badly they had to play offensively to lose to Stanford. Like that's not to say it's, it's, gonna be great in gangbusters it's not gonna be that horrible that was the worst shooting game i've ever seen and they lost by six points yeah i mean it's just there's <laughs> that's that's just laughable the, and i like people should react poorly to that i mean it was it was an awful game to watch and i i totally get it but i'm just saying um there's highs and lows there's gonna be highs and lows and i i was hoping they would you know more or less trend toward the highs in january it doesn't look like that's happening but I do think we're going to see more highs over the uh, final couple months of the season than lows. I do think they're going to win, I don't know, nine, maybe ten games in conference, something like that. Um, it just It's not going to be enough to win the, win the you know, to get an NCAA tournament. Uh, so, so, so I know a lot of fans want to do the what if thing. And you know what, maybe you wanted to talk about uh, Cronin's press yeah. conference. So maybe I'll, I'll do the what if after. So, yeah, go, right, so go for that. Here's the thing. Um, so Mick Cronin has um, – I, I, I love hearing Mick talk about a variety of topics. I think he's a really insightful guy. Post games, um, he's clearly very, very frustrated, and he's pointing at different things, which are all true in the moment. But what I find is that it sounds a little bit like um, – I, I won't say this I, – I, Sometimes the frustration is mirrored on our message board. Like it sounds like a similarly frustrated person who really wants this to do well. And at some level, having a coach who is as passionate as the crazy people on the message board, that's great. That's lovely. But also, um, he had to be aware 
in the same like it's almost like we should have d- directed all of our pregame or preseason broadcasts to Mick because he had to have been aware that this was going to be an extremely frustrating and uh, tough early part of the season as much as we did. And I, I'm just a little concerned because there was a lot of this in 2020 as well. And part of the reason I'm saying this about all these uh, guys who aren't playing is that they all have potential. Um, there was a lot of like, oh, they're going to have to overhaul the roster and all this kind of stuff um, in the middle of 2020 when things were going poorly. Um, and some of that was a little bit from the staff too. Like they were thinking, oh God, we don't have players. And then suddenly they had players, you know, suddenly those guys all looked like players again. Um, don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And this is one where like Mick Cronin said uh, at the Maui uh, pregame, he said, I got to have a lot of patience with this team. And that's not, you know, basically that's not my strong suit. And he really has to have a lot of patience with this team, and that needs to be his strong suit. And uh, what he's been saying in post games is basic. And the Stanford game, I think it was a low point for everybody. It was a low point for Mick, where he's talking about, you know, uh, essentially saying, you know, guys aren't going to be here if they don't, you know, toughen up and all that kind of stuff. And it's just, okay, but what we just talked about is all stuff that's easily seen. Now, the thing with Dylan Andrews is... Uh, troubling, And the thing with the point guard play is troubling, and there might not be a ideal Mick Cronin point guard on this roster. I think you can grant that at this point. But the rest of it, these are all guys with potential. Like, these are all guys with upside, and it's, I mean, like not to not to throw the gauntlet down, but this is your job, buddy. Like, you got to develop these guys. You're a developmental coach, so develop them. And the thing about aptitude and all this kind of stuff, it's like, okay, well, meet them where they are. Okay, if Alon Fabloy is having trouble um, picking up huge defensive assignments, then tell him, hey, when you're in, I want you to stay in front of your guy. You are glued to his front. You do not deviate from that, and I'm going to put you on their hot score every single time, and all I want you to do, you're not going to switch. Nobody's going to switch around you. All you're doing is staying in front of him. That's all I want you to do. And then on offense, all I want you to do is find good offensive rebounding position, get the ball, Put it back in. That's it. That's your entire. He job. might be telling him that though. Sure. Yeah. But I also know from watching practices at different points, they do a lot of like it's it's hardcore game planning and all this kind of stuff. And some of these guys are going to be adept at doing that, and some of them are not. And it's you know there's there's some uh, uh, and maybe this is all happening. Maybe I'm misreading it, but simplification, massive simplification. For basically everyone, start at the fundamentals and then work up to, you know, scouting reports that are extensive and all this kind of stuff. He did but, say recently he simplified it incredibly for this team. Remember yeah. in one of his interviews. I get it. I get yeah. it. But I guess my point is like, okay, and if at that level they're still not getting it, what I don't want is you just say, oh, they're stupid. You know, they, they're never going to get this. We're done. It's okay. Well, if, if me as a teacher and I'm trying to teach somebody and they're not getting it, then I need to figure out a way, different way to teach it. Right. Like, because you didn't go and recruit a bunch of stupid guys. You recruited guys that you liked. So they're not getting it. So figure out a different way to teach it um, is the job. So here's, we're talking about the job too. Here's my, and this is 2020 hindsight. Uh, if we're second, I, I if we're second guessing, um, I'm Dave's been concentrating a little bit on scheme and I've been talking about personnel of the seven freshmen. 
I I think we're we're learning something here is that uh, going forward, UCLA has to be really strong in the transfer portal. It needs to bring in veterans, uh, guys who are further down the line of buying in to Mick Cronin. Um, that's that was key. And that will be key going forward. And what happened in that last offseason, if you remember, uh, basically two guys, uh, Reese uh, Waters and Cam Spencer, were both committed to UCLA and they got away. And they got away for a number of reasons. And at the time, it made sense. Reese Waters wanted a guarantee of uh, starting playing time. Um I'd say almost just every, not every, the vast majority of coaches in the country would have done that. Mostly because they do it anyway, but also, I mean, he was coming into a team full of freshmen. It wasn't that, it wasn't that big of a stretch. No, he was was going to start. And and if you're promising minutes and you're a few minutes off from that, is anyone, is anyone really going to bring that up? Uh, You know, I, I don't think so. Cam Spencer was uh, about NIL. Um, the way the story goes, he had agreed with UCLA. He was getting on it. I think we even reported this. He was getting on his plane for the official visit. Connecticut pretty much doubled the NIL offer. Um, UCLA thought he, he wasn't worth that. Um, I think looking back on it, I'm not going to give you numbers, but I think he was. Um, he is averaging for Connecticut. He's averaging 15 points a game. He's shooting almost 46% from three, and uh, four rebounds and 3.3 assists a game. I, I, I mean, let's just say you have him. That's a difference maker for this team. He's starting at the at one of the guard positions. That might just be enough of a catalyst. But if they had Reese Waters. Also, and these were both guys who were pretty much committed. Reach Reese Waters, thirteen point three points a game, shooting forty three point four percent from three, four rebounds and four rebounds a game. I mean, both of these guys would have been difference makers. I, I think this will be something you would hope the program. Uh, the takeaway for me is. You need to value transfers more than freshmen going forward. Not only because that's the way college basketball is going, but because of the nature of Mick Cronin's program. Um, Transfers are going to buy in quicker. They're older. They're veterans. They know how to play. I mean, Lazar Stefanovic is already a made guy. And, I mean, we can question whether you – I think there's some legitimacy whether he's er, worthy of 37 minutes, but he's doing that because he is a veteran player. UCLA needs to lean into transfer recruiting going forward. Well, so this is an interesting point because I think what we what we had this year was a perfect storm of two problems, which is I think Mick Cronin – he talked, if you remember in the, I think the lead up to uh, the Marquette game, he talked about how he and Shaka Smart have built their programs the same way. They really don't take transfers. Uh, he's only taken one, Shaka doesn't. And I think part of that is understanding who Mick is. He is a developmental guy um, at his fundamental. 
the problem this cycle was they had so many roster spots to fill. And this goes back to your original point. If you're going to have to bring in that many freshmen, then you need to rethink things. You need to rethink your plan. Now, in a typical cycle where they're only, you know, targeting three guys, I don't hate continuing to be a developmental program because you'll have vets in the program. The yep. problem this cycle was the vets in the program were two sophomores, Will McClendon, Kenny Nuba, and am I forgetting anyone else? No. Yeah, none of, none of the guys and you were— can say, You could say that Bona and Andrews— are closer to freshmen than they are to veterans. Absolutely, and they never were ball dominant. Because what you're looking for when you have vets is guys who are ball dominant. You're looking for veteran guards at the college level. You want veteran guards and wings. Guys guys who would supply the same role, maybe a little bit better, but the same role they did last year. Both exactly. Adambona and Dylan Andrews are taking on massively bigger roles. And that's the biggest thing about this team is that every single player except for maybe Nuba is playing a bigger role than they probably should at this point. Um, and Bona's starting to grow into his. No one else really is. Um, and so your Will point, McClendon was this close, and then he took a step back. So I guess my point is, I don't want to draw a general rule from this. I think there's a specific rule and a specific mess-up that was here, which was taking so many freshmen when you had so many spots to fill that you had to take at least one of Cam Spencer and Reese Dixon Waters. You had to take at least one. Because if you add just one veteran guard who can make shots on this team, I don't know if it would, I, I don't know if just their simple stats would have that effect, but I think having that person would have be such a pressure release for so many of these guys because all of these wings, all of these guards are pressing so hard all the time they're out there on the floor. Clearly trying to make the right play, messing up a lot of times, clearly in their own heads. You had a guy like Cam Spencer who's just going to drain 45% of his threes and take a lot of them. Because Will McClendon's hitting a lot of his threes, but he's taking like two a game. Cam Spencer's taking six a game, and he's making half of them. Uh, that's a huge relief. Like that that makes everyone around him, makes everything easier. It's like having a pass rush in football. It just makes everything easier if you've got a guy who can just drain shots because everything has to loosen up on defense. They got to stretch out a little bit more. Gives you a ton more room for Bona to operate. Gives you a ton more room for Mara to have single coverage where he's not getting just blitzed by a second defender. Like there's so many things that happen when you have a respectable outside shooter who also has the confidence to put it on the floor and get to the hoop. Um, but I don't want to say like next year they should take three transfers because let's see how these guys develop. I guess is my large point about this stupid season. This is going to be a season you have a choice between whether it's a lost season or a rebuilding season. And I don't want to commit to the idea of it being a lost season until it's a lost season. You just don't need to wait until March, wait until early March and see what you have. And if these guys have not developed to the point where you want them to, then yeah, you probably got to cut some guys and you probably got to go to the portal. But we just detailed it. A lot of these guys have playable upside at the UCLA level. And it's just, it's going to depend on, what, how much development, how much growth there is from them over the next two months. If there's a considerable amount, then you might want to ride with what Mick Cronin has built his entire career on, which is development of players. And uh, I don't know. I'll get off my soapbox, but I just think, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't want to draw a general rule from this. I think uh, they messed up this past cycle. I'm gonna have. I'm gonna just say one thing about the next um, transfer portal cycle. 
just get a shooter. That's all I'm going to say. One shooter from the transfer portal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And they've and got then a spot. everything else is what you said. They have Let, a let's spot. Let's see where they are. They yeah, have an they open have spot. spot. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's that's totally right. So, yeah. okay, I think that's it from us. Oh, yeah, that was a long one. Yeah, that was we, – we went hard. We went yeah. big. We went deep. Um, <laughs> to Messant. All right. For Tracy Pearson, I'm David Woods, Bruin Report Online, and we'll talk to you again next time. See you all.